The best tip jar I've ever seen was in Nantucket. You might know Nantucket. It's a sun-kissed holiday island on the east coast of the United States, between Boston and New York. It's very nice if a little preppy, but then in fairness, that's all part of its shtick. And it's a shtick that pulls in a lot of summer visitors from both those cities and indeed all points beyond. And on the southwest edge of the island is a little milkshake and bakery place that the Morgan family stopped in at for some liquid refreshment before a fishing trip. They had a couple of students behind the counter serving and a place for tips in front of the till like everyone seems to these days. Nothing unusual about that. Except that this place had made tipping more interesting. Instead of having a single glass jar saying something like, tips, thanks, with an irritating little smiley face after it, they had two little buckets side by side. One bucket said Red Sox, the Bostonians' baseball team. The other bucket said Yankees, the New Yorkers' baseball team. So now, this becomes more than just a tip jar, doesn't it? It becomes an invitation not simply to drop a dollar bill in, but to declare where your loyalty lies in one of the fiercest American sporting rivalries as you do so. And this was the bit I really liked. Because you could see the relative levels of Red Sox dollar bills and Yankees dollar bills, according to how full each bucket was, it was also an invitation to increase the number of bills you put in if you felt your team was being out-tipped by the competition that day, which is exactly what the Yankees fan in front of me chose to do. The hell with those Red Sox. Now look, it's just a small business, this. They don't have a consumer insight department or a gratuity experience director. It's just a bunch of students making some money over the summer. And I have no real way of quantifying the degree to which making their tip jar more interesting boosted their takings. But I do think we can learn something from this. First of all, they've put a whole new emotion into tipping. It's no longer simply about gratitude, it's now about pride. Second, they've stopped it being a guilt trip or awkward or the least I can get away with. They've made it fun and declarative to the other people in the queue behind me. And everyone who comes in afterwards, look, a Red Sox fan was here and we are big tippers. It's based on a rock solid insight that the vast majority of those coming into the store either are already part of one of the oldest rivalries in baseball or are English and will enjoy pretending to be if you give them the chance to do so. They found a way to encourage more people to tip and prompted some of those who are tipping to tip more than they might have done because they made tipping more interesting. Hello, I'm Adam Morgan and this is the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish, a series of conversations with people whose job it is to make dull subjects interesting to see what we can discover ourselves for those moments when we don't want or can't afford to bore our own audiences, whether as a business, as a brand, or as an individual. And at the heart of this exploration is not only the question about what the real cost of being dull is, but also whether something more interesting, even something as mundane as a tipping jar in a holiday deli, can increase its commercial value. Now, for many of us, the cost of dull isn't immediately apparent. That's part of its trouble. But our guest today is someone in a business where dull is very quickly and very obviously expensive, if not commercial suicide, the world of light entertainment. Maz Farrelly is a brilliant producer of shows that, if you haven't seen them, 8 billion others have. She's worked on three continents, producing programs like Big Breakfast, Big Brother, The X Factor, Dancing with the Stars and Celebrity Apprentice. But she now works with individuals and businesses to make them more interesting helping them gain and sustain attention, own the room, because that's more commercially lucrative for them, but also, she says, because that's where the fun in life is. Everything, she says, is a performance, and she believes anybody can make everything and everyone more interesting if they're prepared to scratch it hard enough. 
So listen out for a couple of things. Listen out for what she calls white noise, how she characterizes dullness and what she means by that. Listen out for why a TV program is a series of doors and why that matters and why you've become a really lazy producer while your dog is a really good one. Here's my conversation with Maz Farrelly. Maz, thank you so much. Really looking forward to talking about you. And I must just say, you put on a good show already. So, I mean, people obviously listening to the podcast can't see, but you've got a purple screen behind you with Maz Speaks right up in big white letters. I mean, the branding here is fantastic. I like to be professional once every 45 years, and it's today, Adam. So, happy (laughs) days, huh? I once saw an interview with you where you said, I'm a producer, everything's production. Do you think that's right? I think if if you're ambitious and you want something, you have to produce the situation so that you get what you want. And it sounds a little bit unkind until you think about the bigger picture of life. If your child wants you to do something, you know, take me to the zoo, daddy, they're not going to shout at you, you, zoo, now. They're going to go, daddy, I love you. Daddy, you're the best daddy in the world. Zoo, your dog is a really good producer. If you have a dog and it is a freezing cold night and it's raining and your dog wants you to take it for a walk in the park, your dog will produce you. It will sit in front of you and it will make you want to do what it would like you to do. And that, I think, is the key to life and the key to business. If you can get people to do what you would like them to do, but actually they want to do it because, you know, it is good for them, then you're kind of going to get everything you want in life. I mean, it's not that simple, but it sort of kind of is, Adam, to be honest. And what part does kind of attention and making things more interesting play in getting them to want to do that? Well, attention is everything. Because if you don't have attention, there's no way, you know, if your dog is sitting in the basket, it doesn't have your attention. So it'll get the lead and sit in front of you and it'll do the cutest face it possibly can. Uh, and that will work. And your child would do the same. You know, if your dog wants your attention, it'll bark. It's not going to, you know, write you a note. This is what I think. If you are interesting, people are interested. If you're not interesting, people are not interested. Dull does not convert. You know, if you're memorable, people will remember you. And I spoke at a conference recently for uh, Terry White Chemart. There are chemists here and pharmacies, trained pharmacies. And... I said to the audience, about 600 people in the audience, I said, turn to the person next to you, tell them what you do, be interesting, be memorable. And everyone had a little chat and I said, okay, so tell me, has anyone heard anything good? And this brilliant woman, Karen Brown, she put her hand up and she said, I've heard the best, the guy next to me. And I said, okay, what's his one line? What's his memorable one line? And she said this. I said to him, what do you do? And he said, I fix dicks. So this man works in men's health. Now, he could say that. He could say, you know, I work in men's health and I work around the genital region. And, you know, if men have problems with a knee dysfunction, I can. No, I fix dicks. And you think, A, you have my attention. It is impossible for me not to say, that's interesting. Tell me more. In every business conversation, when someone says, what do you do? They have to say those words. That's interesting. Tell me more. Because if they don't, they're not interested and they don't want to know more. (laughs) And you kind of do have to want to know more in life. It's such a basic thing. Because I hate people who speak in white noise and speaking cliches. When you start to pay attention to white noise, which um, I'm currently obsessed with, you notice it everywhere. What do you mean by white noise? So white noise is the sound of air conditioning or traffic. 
it's sound that you can't hear. Uh, so when people come into castings, so I've made a lot of big reality shows. I've interviewed about 12,000 people, which is an extraordinarily large number of people mm -hmm. to interview. Mm -hmm. And we would have signs everywhere saying, do not say these things because you will be instantly forgettable. And we'd have them <laughs> written on the wall. Uh, don't say, I'm a people person. I really want to win this. I'm going to give it 110%. It's not my time to go. This is the most important day of my life. I really just want to meet people because that's what everyone says. And when you do, you sound like everyone else. Right. And, you know, when people say, do you know I'm a real people person? I would say to them, what does that mean? Does that mean that you won't kill us? Or what does it mean? Because it's such a thing that people say all the time. And when you say it, I cannot remember you. And I can't remember what you've said. And I have to be able to remember you. Because if I can't remember you, I can't remember you. And I've got to remember you. So why in your line of business is it so important that people, and when you're producing shows, it's so important that people are remembered? Well, it is, you know, it's show business. So it is a business. So it, say Big Brother, you might go out and interview 3,000 people. And when you interview 3,000 people, it's an awful lot of people. And some people will come in and they're memorable. And you like them and you have to like them because you know you have a choice of 3,000 people. I had a girl called Constance Hall who now is a mummy vlogger and an influencer and I instantly loved her because when people come in you give them the same brief please don't tell me you're a real people person you really want to win this going to give it 110% don't tell me all the white noise stuff tell me where you're different different to everyone uh -huh. else out there why should I put you in the big brother house and not them go and she said, oh, I'm not a people person. I don't like people very much. I find them very disappointing, actually. <laughs> you know, they say they're going to do things and then they don't. And I thought, oh, my God, I love you. And another one who stood out and oh, I really liked this guy. His name was Nick, I think. And he was really interesting. He was attractive and very well spoken. And this was, uh, I think, in Australia. And he was British. And he said, you're looking at me and you're seeing this, you know, attractive, well-spoken person. Yes. And uh, he said, but I think it will surprise you to know that I'm actually living in a car. I am, I don't have a home uh, and I don't have the chance of owning one because I'm not earning enough. And I said to him, I feel like you're telling me stuff that you think I want to hear. And I don't know if you're telling me the truth. And actually, I don't really mind because... I like people who play me, you know, I think it's great. Not in life, but at work, definitely. And um, he said, oh, you know, well, you sitting there making a decision about my life. Mm, yeah, you sitting there asking all the questions, yeah? And I said, yeah, okay, then. Well, look, you ask me a question. You can ask me one question and I want to see how interesting you are. But here's the thing. It's got to be a question that matters. So don't ask me, do you like your job? Are you happy? And he said, oh, okay, I'll ask you a question. And he thought for this long. And he said, if someone hurt someone in your family, really hurt them, and you could kill that person and get away with it, would you do it? <laughs> wow, what you, okay. What did you say? I said, you're in the house. You are booked, <laughs> my friend. You are booked. And was he, good, was he good television in the end? Well, we needed an intruder. And you put an intruder in when you want to throw a grenade into the house. You want the house to change. When it becomes a little bit too comfortable, you think it needs another dynamic. It's a bit like putting chili into a dish. You suddenly go, oh, wow. And we needed some oh, wow. He delivered oh, wow. So he went in. He was back out again in about two weeks. <laughs> so he didn't last long. But as he was leaving the room, he turned around and he said, would you do it? And I said, what do you think? And he said, 
Oh, yeah, you do it. <laughs> so I really liked him. So people stand out. And this would be this would be 20 years ago, Adam. Their conversations I can remember 20 years on. So it matters. And this sounds like nature rather than nurture, though. It sounds like these people just, for whatever reason, they're just naturally like that. How often did you find you could take somebody who actually was pretty intrinsically dull, would have said half those things up on the wall if you'd given them half the chance. But actually, you, how could you make them more interesting? How did you make them more interesting? Oh, I have to disagree with you because I don't think it's nature. I think it's learned behaviour. I think we've become quite lazy in our thinking and in our speech. Okay. And I think companies are quite lazy. There was a brilliant ad well, an actual, it was an edit of 18 COVID ads put together from the biggest companies in the world. I don't, um, did you see it? It was, I can't remember if we put it together. But give it a goog. It's something like, um, why are all COVID ads the same? And big companies like Facebook, DoorDash, Uber, Toyota, like big, you know, Nissan, Nissan, big companies. And they all started with some somber music and then some humming. And then they all told us how long they'd been in business. And they said, Nissan has been with you through thick and thin. Mm -hmm. And every time I heard the ad, I'd think, when I split up my last boyfriend, no one from Nissan came around with a bottle of tequila saying, <laughs> he was so bad for you, Maz. You're better off without him. <laughs> and which is, but it's white noise. It's nonsense, isn't it, really? You know, Nissan's yeah. always been there for you. I'm sure you're lovely people, Nissan. I'm sure you're absolutely lovely. But don't say that because it's just not true, is it? So even big companies will become cliched and lazy. And actually, during COVID, did we want to see big open spaces and hear someone playing somber music and humming? No, I wanted to see cats falling over and, you know, dogs wearing old ladies' dentures. <laughs> I wanted something that was jolly. And I think lots of companies don't read the room. You know, they don't, they don't read the room. And it's, you know, everyone's going to hate me. I think it's lazy thinking. I think, I think some people, they think that's fine. But when's fine good enough? Yeah, and okay. Yeah, fine isn't good enough. In TV, people will say, how are you feeling today? You're about to go on stage on The X Factor. And most people will say four words. What do you think they are, Adam? And now that I say this to you, you will hear them absolutely everywhere. Uh, and we used to do drinking games. As soon as someone said, <laughs> you'd have a little <laughs> swig of your wine. Anyone who's walking on stage, you say to them, how are you feeling? They will say four words. Do you know what they are? No. I'm nervous, but excited. <laughs> now, you will hear that everywhere from now on. Right. Now, lazy producers will say, great. And good producers will say, tell me why. And we did a story on, I think it was The X Factor. And it was someone who was quite new. And I said, look, you know, we'll do this together. You know, I'll come and show you how uh -huh. you know, I like to interview. So, you know, I'm nervous, but excited. Why? You know, because I have never sung in public before. You go, well, that's the start of a story, isn't it? Why? Because I'm a lawyer and my parents want me to be a lawyer and they don't want me to be a singer. And, you know, why? Because, you know, dad's a lawyer, mum's a lawyer, brother's a lawyer, you know, every relation's a lawyer. Right, okay. That's interesting. So, um, you know, your parents here today? Yes. Oh, do they know you're singing? No. You know, this is just the best story ever. Where are your parents? <laughs> They're over there. Brilliant. So we take a camera down to the parents and we say, hi, you know, we're just taking shots of the audience. Do you mind if we interview you? Just, you know, yeah, sure. You know, why are you here today? Kid got us tickets. All right. Is your kid a singer? No. Really? What does your kid do? Lawyer. 
All right. How would you feel if your kid was a singer? Oh, come on. Not my kid. Can't sing. Really? You've heard them? Well, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, they sound fine at home in the shower. But uh, yeah, you know, no oral lawyers, no singers in our family. And we say to them, do you mind if we film you for the next few, you know, do you mind? No, go ahead. And isn't that a lovely story? Kid walks out. It doesn't matter whether the kid's a good singer or not because the story's so brilliant, uh-huh. you know, that it works. But lazy producers will stop at, you know, I'm nervous but excited. But if you're interested and curious, you'll ask more questions. And so this is what I've learned from interviewing so many people. Everybody has an interesting story, but most people won't ask the questions to discover that story. Everybody has an interesting story. There is nobody on earth who doesn't have one. Just one? Oh, more than one, thousands of them. But you've got to, you've got to ask them questions that matter, okay. I think. So, so let's come back to the questions in a minute. But why is it you think that most of us have become lazy producers? Why are we, why are I we think, lazy? I think some of us have. I think that, I think that they probably don't have people like me in the room. Not that I'm a great thinker, but I will ask questions. And also my quality control is quite high. I would send stuff back and say, it's fine. But I think our audience would like more than fine. Uh-huh. And I don't think we're going to be the number one show if we're fine. <laughs> I think we're going to be the number one show if we're really good. And on the wall everywhere on my shows, I would put, we're the number one show. And I say to people all the time, we're number one. So everything that you do, put it through that prism of not being number three or four or five. But you know, if you were on the number one show, what would you do? If you're on the number three show, what would you do? Don't do the number three show. The number yeah. three show is I'm nervous but excited. But we're going to be more interesting than that. We're going to ask better questions and we're going to find interesting stories. We're going to tell those stories in a way that's surprising because our audience only has one attention. They only have one. They don't have six that they can separate and we can have a little bit. You know, we've got to earn it. And it is transactional. You know, you pay attention. I'm going to give you my attention, but I expect something back for it. Uh You know, I will spend time. It is transactional. And if I'm going to give you my time and my attention, you kind of have to earn it. And it's disrespectful. How many times have you been, I don't know, at a conference or somewhere and you'll say to somebody... What do you do? And they will say something so boring that you think, I am going to leave town now. I am going to <laughs> actually go into witness protection. But you do, you say, I'm just going to go and get a coffee. I'll be right back. You're not going to go back. But not, every, is... not, not everybody can say, I fix dicks. Not everybody's got that line. No, but you can say something interesting. You can find a unique selling point in your business. Yeah. But it's, it's harder to write than your wedding vows. We worked with someone, a woman who was a partner at a legal firm, and we said to her, what do you do? She said, I'm a partner at a legal firm. I don't know where it was. Uh, and we said, I think it's bigger than that. And we settled on, I keep senior CEOs out of jail. That's great. It's great, isn't it? Very now, she good. could say, I'm a lawyer, but you're never going to say, that's interesting, tell me more. See previous, you have to say, that's interesting, tell me more. You'll never say that to you, I'm a lawyer. Or you'll say, that's interesting, but you won't mean it. And, yeah, I think it's the start of a conversation, it's the end of a conversation, and it's your choice. But I think it is, you know, it's down to you to be interesting. It's not down to me to be interested, which makes me sound unkind and cruel, but... No, I buy that completely. And so, so what's your line about yourself, by the way? 
I say I help companies and individuals have the X factor. So when there's a conversation about your industry, they're talking about you. When I used to make TV shows, I used to say, you know, when you watch TV and you just go, is there nothing but that reality nonsense on TV? I make that nonsense. But then I would qualify it and say, you know, it's the biggest shows in the world with the biggest teams and the biggest audiences. And, you know, my content's been watched eight billion times and blah, blah. You, you've described television as a series of doors. Tell us a little bit about that series of doors and what it means. Yeah, well, this is, I think this, I think that everything has a job. Which I know is a very strange thing, but your shirt has a job. The job of your shirt is to say, I'm creative. I'm a thinker. I'm different. You, know, you could be wearing a you know, black t-shirt, white t-shirt, a gray shirt, but you made a decision. And the decision is, I'm an artistic person. And I want people to know that, that that shirt's doing a job. The first 30 seconds of a TV show what is the job of the first 30 seconds? Make you watch the next 30 seconds. The job of the next 30 seconds to make you watch the next 30 seconds. The job of segment one is to make you watch segment two. The job of segment two is to make you watch segment three. They're all doors. So the first door on the TV show is the promo. Right. If the promo is good, then you will open that door and you will enter the show. If the first 30 seconds of the show is good, you will enter the next room, which is the next 30 seconds, you will open that door and you'll go in. And the job of show one is to make you watch show two. I've got to get you to open the door and travel into show two. And you cannot take for granted that because I've opened the first door and gone in, that I will keep going in. It's, you know, it's a corridor that never ends with endless doors. And you have to keep inviting your audience to go through. Every second counts. Everything has a job. I love the ambition and the clarity about the word. So let's think about people. So it's a reality TV show. Um, Adam has come along and auditioned, and Adam has the voice of an angel, but boy, is he dull. What's the job of a producer with Adam? My job is to make you interesting and also to give you a headline, but I can only give you the headline that suits you. So I will really, really, really pay attention to you. And I think, why are you different? And you can be the most shy person in the world. And that's absolutely fine because if you have 30 people who are jazz hands, it's exhausting. You know, you cast everything uh, with people who are completely different. It's like eating spaghetti every day stops tasting nice. You know, you want change, you want variety. Everybody has a place and everybody does a job. And you really do cast it like a drama. So if you're a shy person, we will tell the story of you being shy, you know, and you're the person who, you know, you're the person of not many words. And we will talk about how shy you are and how painful it is for you to talk, but how when you sing, you know, you lose your stutter or you lose your stammer or you suddenly gain this confidence and people will love you for it. So I don't ever want anyone to be who they're not because you can't keep that up. And on Big Brother, we would call it leakage, that you can last about a week trying not to be who you are. <laughs> uh, and that's why sometimes the first week is not interesting, you know, because people are on their best behaviour. And then you start to leak. Okay. And that's when it really kicks off and it becomes really interesting. But if you are really shy and we pretend you're not and you pretend you're not, it's like you're behind glass. And you know that yourself, that you'll see some actors... And some you love and you connect with and others, it's like you've got your hand up against some glass and they've got their hand up against the glass and you can't feel them. Yeah. I always feel that, that about Tom Cruise. I always think it's like he's behind glass and I don't know what it is, but there is something, I don't know, 
do we know him any better than when he first walked out in front of us? And the answer is that would be no. But, you know, Lindsay Lohan, you've been through the ups and downs and, you know, Taylor Swift, you've been through all the love and the heartbreak. And these are people that you really like because they're not white noise. They're up and they're down and they're real and they're honest. It's true. But Tom Cruise is a number one show. He's been very well produced. He's been magnificently well produced. He's never put a foot wrong. But I would say this to you. If you're going to be stuck in the lift with Ozzy Osbourne or Tom Cruise, who would you choose? Well, my wife is deeply in love with Tom Cruise and has been for the last you know, 40 years. So I, I think I have to say Tom Cruise in that You'd situation. have to say Tom Cruise, But if yes. you're first stuck for the weekend in a lift, I'd take Ozzy. Every time. So give me an example, Maz, of what it means to produce somebody in a really interesting way. The great clip to watch is Susan Boyle, because you're left in no doubt what you're supposed to think before she sings. And then when she sings, it's the greatest shock. Mm-hmm. But if you actually pay attention to that clip, Adam, she doesn't say, I'm a terrible singer. She says, I want to be like Elaine Page. I want to blow the roof off this place. And you think, oh, right. Now, if you just heard that and she was introduced as, here's Susan Boyle. She's won 24 talent contests in Scotland. Take it away, Susan. You'd go, she's all right. She's not great. But a very clever producer told you a completely different story. And suddenly, you think she's amazing. I have rules for television. And my rules are, so anyone who is a storyteller, this is 30 years of um, storytelling condensed into a 10-second masterclass. And I do lots of storytelling with companies. I say, this is kind of it. I mean, obviously, it has to have a beginning, middle and end. But you have to make me laugh, make me cry and surprise me. And if you can do those three things... It's a brilliant story. If you can do two, you're good. If you can do one, you're like everyone else. But if you go through that and you play Susan Ball Bingo and you tick off when you are laughing, when you're crying, when you care about her, when she tells you a part of the story that makes you care and when she surprises you, it really works. Every cutaway and every word does a job there. And the job is this woman is going to be awful. And then when she sings, it is like you are the thirstiest person in the world and someone's given you a glass of wine or water. (laughs) It's very well produced. You know, see previous. It's been well produced. It's, you know, it's very, very clever. And that's why she's famous. Not because of her voice. It's because the producer was a guy called Ben Thursby and he's brilliant. So I think your point about caring about them is a really interesting one. I remember seeing an interview with the guy at the WWE, the wrestling, you know, the big wrestling kind of organization in the States. And he said, what we want is when wrestlers come out, we want the audience to instantly cheer them or instantly boo them. It's when the audience doesn't know what to do that we know that person has no future. Is that the same kind of thing with you? Is that that sense of, you know, you need an instant read on, am I for this person or am I against them effectively? So with Big Brother... You have to love it or hate it. If you don't feel anything, that's when I'm in trouble. Yeah. So two of us are executive, executive producer, and in a lot of the time we were in trouble with everyone. And, you know, we'd be in the press a lot. And the other exec would be very upset by this. And I would say, look, one day nobody is going to write about us. Now, that is the day I will be tearful, is the day that no one cares 
But if they love us or hate us, we're doing something right. The thing that is genius about wrestling is they walk on stage and they're a walking headline. They're a walking one-liner. You know, they'll be dressed like, you know, Thor or they'll be dressed like, you know, Dolly Parton wrestling. And you go, I know exactly who you are. Do you still produce yourself for something like this? Or is it, you know, you've done it so often, actually, you are now a natural production kind of in residence? I think quite a lot. <laughs> My friends would disagree. Uh, I, yeah, I think about positioning constantly because it's interesting and it's fun. And I find it really interesting. Like, I really, really find it interesting. I think because... I help companies be more interesting. I genuinely have to make an effort to be more interesting because, and people write to me afterwards and they go, that was interesting. And I write back and say, thank goodness, huh? Because if it wasn't, I'd be in terrible trouble. But I think it makes life more interesting. When you settle for fine, where's the fun in that? Simon Cowell says you know, famously, it's much more fun getting to number one than being number one. And I agree with that. I used to love taking over a show that didn't work and making right. it work. Because when you take over a show and it's number one, yeah, it's great, but it's not as much fun. It's much more fun, you know. There was a security guard at the BBC and every day I thought, I'll make you smile. She was the grumpiest person alive. And I would produce the situation so she would laugh or smile every day. I just made a little project for myself. <laughs> and you think, right. it makes arriving at work more interesting, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Why would you not live a life that's more interesting if you have a choice? No, I love that. But that's, that's, therefore, that's not just about being the number one show. I mean, clearly, professionally, you might want to be the number one show. But actually, your view about life is, let's just make it more interesting generally. And that's, therefore, if I sharpen in a more interesting way, I'll provoke a more interesting reaction. And therefore, I'll have just a more interesting time. And now, have you always been like that? Or was that something that actually a life in production, working with some fantastic people, taught you? I do think about that. I think chicken and egg. I think probably I've always been like that. I've always been competitive. And now that I am a speaker, I want to be the most expensive booked and loved speaker in Australia. That's my goal. So it used to be, uh, this is the number one show. And now I say to my friends, I want to be the most booked, loved and expensive speaker in Australia. <laughs> and my friends say this to me, or you could just be fine and give yourself a break. And I say to them, but where's the fun in that? Where is the fun in dialing it in? Like, there's just no fun in that. I want the audience, whoever the audience is, I want them to be laughing and crying and leaving, feeling like that was an hour of their life that was very well spent because they're giving me their attention. And I take that really seriously. It's an hour of their life. I mean, clearly you have a very natural uh, capability for this, but part of your point is that actually most of us, if not all of us do really, we're just being lazy producers. Do, do you think that being more interesting is simply a series of strategies then that actually that is, it is very teachable. You can teach anybody how to do this. Yes. Someone interviewed me for a magazine here. It was, about, it was a piece about charisma. And everyone was saying, you know, you're born with it, you're not. And I said, I completely disagree. I think you can teach charisma. Uh, and essentially, that's what you do in TV. You take people who say the same stuff and you help them be more interesting. And it's inside them, they have it. It's just that no one has questioned it. So I did a talk, I think um, it might have been last week or the week before, and it was on Zoom and they had a breakout room. And uh, it was a talk about white noise and being interesting. And they said, uh, we want you to pose a question to the audience so they can go into their breakout rooms. 
and uh, you know have some robust discussion. What do you want to ask them? And I think they're expecting me to say, you know, what have you learned from today or whatever. And uh, I said, I want you to go to your breakout rooms and discuss how boring you are and what you're going to do about it in the next hour. (laughs) And everyone just started laughing. And then everyone came back and said, we realised we're really boring and we're going to change our assets. Yes. Okay. So do you think it's difficult? So somebody listening, um, you know, another Adam sitting somewhere in another room in southwest London, for instance. It's not hard, therefore, to tell if you're boring. Your point is you can just look at what you're doing, how you're communicating yourself compared to everybody else. And if it's exactly the same, it's white noise, what you're saying, effectively. And you need to look for the thing about you that's interesting and different and unique. Is it more complicated than that? No, it's, it's actually much simpler. I think that until someone like me walks into the room and says, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to what you're saying, is it you or is it the same old stuff that everyone says and you're writing it because you think you should? And the answer probably is I'm writing it because (laughs) I think I should. But actually, I'm much more interesting than that. Everybody is interesting. Everybody is. But 99% of people just tone it down and don't tell you until someone like me walks into the room and says, I think you're more interesting than that. I think you're much more interesting than that. I think this is quite boring, but you're interesting. What are you going to do about it right now? And people would change in an hour. When we were discussing this a couple of weeks ago, you used a really interesting word to describe that. You talked about scratching at people or scratching at questions. Oh, yeah. it, I mean, to tell me a bit more about scratching, because it's such an interesting verb that, isn't it? Because you're, you're sort of removing layers. You're kind of getting to the sort of thing underneath, really. So imagine you're out in the outback and you might see a tiny little glint of something shining. And you go over and you scratch the surface and it's gold. And I think that people are like that, that sometimes they've just got a layer of dust over them because they've forgotten that they've got to be interesting. (laughs) And they've just, yeah, they've just forgotten that actually it's everything in life. And they're gold underneath, but they're just not telling you. And companies do the same. You know, companies and, and charities, you know, charities are terrible at this. There's... um. A charity day here called Legacy Day, and it happens once a year. And school children are given a little tray and they sell badges. And the money goes to people who return service people. And I was walking through the station with my team a couple of years ago. And this kid stopped us on Legacy Day and said, do you want to buy a badge? So what am I going to say? No, don't want a badge. And I said, but I don't think you're selling badges. I don't think that's what you're selling. And my team are looking at me like, just keep walking. And because I'm obsessed with messaging, I can't help myself. So um, I said, I don't think you're selling badges, darling. And this kid said, mm, selling badges. I said, no, I think what you're selling is thank yous. I think you're selling thank yous to people who've been to war, for people like me who are too scared and lazy. I have no discipline. I will never go to war. You don't want me fighting to keep this country safe, but I want someone else to do it for me. I want someone else to do my dirty work so that I can live in a country that is free and safe. And I think what you're doing is you're saying thank you to those people. Would you like to say thank you to someone who has been to war for you to keep Australia safe? Would you like that? Or would you like to buy a badge? So I don't think you're going to sell a badge, but I think you'll sell some thank yous. And, you know, this kid looked terrified, obviously. And so we're going to go and get a coffee on the way back. I want to see all those badges gone. And I came back and all the badges were gone. 
and uh, it could be that they went in the bin. It's very possible. <laughs> uh, but I said, you know, what about your pals? And they said, oh, selling badges, still selling badges, got hundreds of them left. And I think um, we do do that. We take the easy option, we go, I'm selling badges, but you're probably not selling badges. You're probably selling something much bigger than that. And it takes, you know, thinking is much harder than not thinking. You know, it's much easier not to think. So, you know, get thinking. It's hard, but when you embrace it, it is the most fun you'll have. It's so much fun. So let's come to the uh, dinner party. You've been invited round by the neighbours for a bite to eat. You're sitting next to some new people in town who you've never met before. You're finding it quite heavy going. You know, they're talking a lot about the virtues of the Toyota Previa and their children's hockey expertise and somehow those subjects aren't grabbing you so much how do you how do you have a more interesting conversation with them so when people ask me the same questions that everyone always asks me I always like to ask it back so I didn't have children I didn't get married and very often people would say to me why didn't you have children and I would say to them why did you (laughs) and very often they can't answer it and they'll say god I don't know I said, well, have a think about it. It's a big decision. You know, these people are with you forever. <laughs> you know, I find it difficult to take a, you know, a phone contract for more than six months. I don't know where I'm going to be in six months. I can't have a dog. You know, it's a very big commitment. Uh, so I like to ask the question back or ask the exact opposite. I always like to ask people what's making them happy. I always like to ask them the last thing that made them really angry. Uh, you know, when you interview people, you have questions that are, I call them back pocket questions. You can just pull out of your back pocket. And if we thought a conversation was going in a dull way, we could throw one out. So it'd be something like, um, when was the last time you cried? When was the last time you made someone cry? Uh, you know, what makes you angry? That's always a good place to start when you have writer's block. What makes you angry? Uh, it's also a really good place for a TV show that... If there isn't something that's making you angry, it's probably not going to work. It's got to create some sort of emotion in you, I think. Well, just pulling it all together then. So we have become lazy producers, effectively, and being interesting is really kind of the key to um, kind of getting everything you want out of life. Give us your three bits of advice about how to stop being a lazy producer and be more interesting. Uh, Think about your unique selling point. You will have a unique selling point. You will have something that makes you different to everyone else in the marketplace. And people say to me constantly, I don't have a unique selling point. I say, you will, but you just got to look for it. One of my favorite people was a woman who didn't have a unique selling point, And we made that her unique selling point. <laughs> and she wrote scripts. And she said, uh, I know that I have very broad appeal because I think like everybody, I live in Concord, which is the average suburb in Sydney. I live in a house that's 2.5 million, which is the average price for a house in Concord. I have 2.5 children and I drive a Holden. I am so average, it's not funny. I even have average blood pressure. <laughs> she said, if you want to find one person that is the typical Australian, you don't have to do a huge poll of the country. You just come around to my house, have some tea and biscuits and have a chat because <laughs> I am that person. So everybody has a unique selling point. Uh, always have an opener have some interesting questions in your back pocket uh, I mean a, a, you know, a great way of doing this for an interview is to think about all the terrible things they might ask you and have some really positive things ready so when I do media training with people 
I would say, you know, whatever awkward question they ask you, just give them the answer, you know, a very, very positive one. But always having some interesting questions in your back pocket uh, always works because you'll be the most interesting person at whatever event you are at because people like to talk about themselves and people like to be interesting. People like to be interesting. Yeah. They really like it. Uh, and be yourself, but be yourself that's a bit more condensed. So don't be Coke light or <laughs> skimmed milk. Be, you know, the full fat milk and be the heavily sugared Coca-Cola. But don't vanilla yourself because vanilla is very difficult to describe. But chili is really easy to describe. Whatever you are, don't try and be someone else because audiences can read it. And why would you bother? Yeah. You know, if you're shy, be shy. It's fine. If you're outgoing, be outgoing. But don't water it down. Maz, thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, explains why giving a name to cognitive biases is useful. It allows people to talk about them around the water cooler use them in everyday life. I felt this was very much the case with some of Maz's concepts. The concept of white noise, for instance. We all know what that is. What a useful word and lens to have as we look at our next pitch or presentation or conversation at the school gate. Let's do a white noise audit on ourselves. Think about what we're planning to say and do tomorrow. What's going to be so much white noise and where do we really need to cut through? Or the idea that everything is a production and that we are all producers or should be thinking of ourselves as producers. So I'm sitting in my study at my dad's old desk recording this in the early evening, a week or so after doing the interview. And I could and should think through all the events of my day to day and divide them into things I have produced and things I haven't. And just the act of being conscious about that makes me start to wonder productively, I think, what would have happened if I'd thought about producing a couple of the others a little more, that speech or that event? Producing it as well as the guys in that deli in Nantucket produced their tip jar. Which, by the way, fits Maz's filter for great content very well, doesn't it? They made us care. They made us smile. They surprised us. And she was really interesting about that balance between everyone can do this. Everyone can be interesting. It's just a series of strategies. And at the same time, the need to be, as she put it in an email to me, wildly prepared. It takes work. Writing that one-liner about yourself, she said, is harder to write than your wedding vows. And funny, I was so struck that for all I deliberately started the podcast with somebody I was really confident would be solely focused on a very commercial underpinning for how she thinks about the benefits of being more interesting, for her it's become more than that. It's become the most intoxicating way of living. Because, as she says, Where's the fun in just dialing it in? Let's make this more interesting as an Eat Big Fish podcast with me, Adam Morgan. Thanks to Ruth, my editor, Ross, my producer, and we'll see you next time when I'm speaking to Ross Buchanan, a radio presenter for Absolute Radio and writer for Vice UK.